This sermon, Joy, One of Our Shaping Virtues, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, March 12, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, church. If you're visiting, I just want to echo, we're grateful that you are here this morning. My name is Derek, and I do have the privilege of preaching. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 16? That's going to be our focus. We are in the second week of our Shaping Values series, not to be confused with our with, with our seven shared, uh, did I say shaping values? Yeah. Okay, I, I, I'm about to tell you not to do what I just did. Uh, not to be, our, our seven shaping virtues, not to be confused with, with, boy, the pastors are really confused this morning, not to be confused with our seven shared values. <laughs> Okay, buckle up. Should we just pray? It's on the screen. Just tune me out. Focus on the screen. You will be, it'll all be good. Let me try this again. We are in the second week of our Shaping Virtues series. Seven fruits of the gospel that we believe scripture calls us to, to cherish and to pursue with our lives, both individually and corporately as a local church. And last week, if you were here, we looked at humility. Humility. Today, our focus is the virtue of joy. Joy. For that, we're going to look at Psalm 16. So would you stand with me? Let's read this together. David writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. (laughs) There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Maybe seated. Let's pray. 
Lord, we now come to your word, your self-revelation of who you are, who we are, who Christ is, what you've done in Christ, and how you are working your redemptive purposes in and through us. Lord, help me as the one you have called to preach this text this morning. May what I say be faithful to your truths. May my words draw people to your son. And may our hope and confidence be in your spirit to do the work that you intend to do in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we begin at the end. We're going to go to the end of this chapter, and that's where we will begin, because Psalm 16, I'm sure you notice, Psalm 16 ends with an explosion of joy. We find, by the time, by the time David gets to, first, to verse uh, at 9, 10, and 11, he is bursting at the seams with joy. Did you notice how this psalm ends in verse 9? He says, my heart is glad. Remember, this psalm starts with, preserve me, O Lord. He's seeking refuge. And by the time he is done, he says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. And then this amazing proclamation in verse 11, in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures, or you can say joy forevermore. David's desperate cry in verse one: "Keep me, O God! Protect me! Hold me! Sustain me!" Well, before our very eyes, <laughs> it turns to exuberant, joyful worship. I would submit to you. <laughs> Not on any substance, but the pure word of, word of God, David is as high as he can get. He is as high as he can get. And here's what we learn. Here's what we're going to learn. Here's what I hope we learn by spending time with this joyful king this morning. If you're, if you're taking notes, write this down. Pursuing the, God of joy, pursuing the God of all joy produces a joyful church in all circumstances. Pursuing the God of all joy produces a joyful church in all circumstances. I want to begin by asking you a simple question. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's possible to experience joy, even a fullness of joy, even today, and I don't mean just heaven, but today. Do you believe it's possible to possess joy that transcends even your most difficult circumstance? What is it right now? Do you believe that it's possible to have joy. I think Psalm 16, we're going to find, Psalm 16 
compels us to answer with a resounding yes. Yes. See, the truth is, is that as Christians, we are joy seekers. We're called to be joy seekers. Joy is a constant theme throughout the Bible. God promises to give us joy repeatedly. Psalm 30 verse 5 is just one. Difficult is the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy, Scripture teaches us that joy is the fruit of the Spirit's presence in us. Even this series, we we understand joy as as the fruit of the gospel. Galatians 5.22 is clear. Scripture also commands us to pursue pursue joy, even in trials. James 1 verse 2, and to rejoice at all times. That's encompassing. Not much wiggle room there, right? Philippians 4, 4. When we read the Bible, it's clear. God, God wants his church. He wants his people to be characterized by joy. Listen, if you're a parent, right? Like a father or a mother has this deep longing for their child to be happy, God desires you as his child to experience joy to the fullest. Don't believe, don't believe anybody who tells you there's no joy in being a Christian. Don't let anybody tell you that if you're reformed, you can't have joy. (laughs) It's not true. God created us as joy seekers. And what we're going to learn today is that in that, pursuing the God of all joy produces a joyful church in all circumstances. Yes, it's possible. Now, we need to begin by making sure that we're on the same page when we're talking about joy. We are not talking about a strong personality trait. We are not talking about a Pollyanna attitude toward life. We we are not talking about a superficial, contingent happiness, right? I'll be happy, I'll be joyful, I'll rejoice if the Lord gets me that job or if my adult child finally comes to know the Lord or if I get to serve where I want to serve in my church. You fill in the blank. That's not what we're talking about. Here's what we're talking about. Joy, true biblical joy is an abiding and deep delight in God for the sheer beauty of who he is and the infinite worth of what he has done in Christ. Do you lack joy today? Is that you? Are you here this morning, you wonder, you think to yourself, Pastor, I'm not feeling very joyful We're all there at times, right? Well, listen, you're in the right place. Not because I'm preaching, but because Psalm 16 gives you a pathway to true and lasting joy. Our passage points out four markers in David's progression from verse 1 to verse 11. His, His progression where his faith turns to joy, if you will, And in this progression, those four points really serve as categories for us in our own pursuit of joy. 
in the Lord. And so the first one that we see is in verse 2. Know your Lord. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, David has just cried out to the Lord, preserve me. You are my refuge. We don't know what's going on here. He doesn't tell us. Something is going on. And so David cries out to the Lord. And if you're like me, normally when troubles arise, that's not always my first impulse. My first impulse is to to immediately set my mind on my human solutions, right? Okay, how did I get here? What needs to be done? How do I remedy this situation? How can I make this better? Typically, that, that response leads to anxiety. It leads to discouragement. It leads to a lack of joy. But notice what David does here. David fills his mind with the knowledge of his God. This is the beginning of true joy. His words here in verse 2 are interesting. Notice, he turns to the Lord, right? In in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. So so he turns to the Lord, and notice that first Lord. It's all caps. And, and, And you may or may not know what that means, but that, that is the holy name of God. In other words, David says, and I say to Yahweh, I say to God. But then did you notice when he, he says, this is what he says, you are my Lord. No caps. Meaning, master, sovereign. So David looks to the Lord, and he says, you are my Lord, or translation, you are my sovereign, you are my master, you have authority over my life. You are sovereign over my life. You are in control of my situation. You are the master of my fate. I rely on you completely for my well-being. More than that, you are my well-being. When he says, when he says at the end of verse 2, I have no good apart from you, the idea there is that you are my good. Some translations will say, I have no good beside you. In other words, he's not just saying, no good gets to me unless you let it through. No, he's saying, you are my good. You are in control over my life. You are working for my good. You work all things for my good. But more than that, you are my good. There is no good in my life apart from you. And and we see this in a parallel statement in verse 5 and 6, where David seems to say pretty much the same thing, only a bit differently. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When, when David here says, you hold my lot, he is saying what he just said in his use of the word Lord. You are in control of my life. 
when he says, you are my portion and cup, he is saying, you are my good. You are my everything. So in his conclusion in verse 6, he says, whatever, whatever is causing him, whatever is moving him to cry out to the Lord, preserve me, by the time he gets to verse 6, after filling his mind with the knowledge of God, look what he says. Ha! The lines have, have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, unless I missed it, nowhere in there are we told that his circumstances have changed. All that we know as that he has filled his mind with the knowledge of his Lord and his disposition is to look upon himself in his life and say, I am, I am a, a blessed man. Really, translation, God, you are good. In feast or famine, in wealth or poverty, in peace or conflict, in health or sickness, in life or death, Lord, you hold my lot. You are in control and you are good. You are my portion. You are my cup. You are my inheritance. So whatever you providentially allow into my life, life is good because you are my life and you are good. Now listen, pause for a moment here. This, this doesn't mean that we call what is bad good. Bad is still bad. Cancer is still bad. Losing a loved one is still bad. A miscarriage is still bad. Hurt is hurt. Suffering is suffering. And tears are tears. But in the words of James 1, 2, and this is one of the greatest fights in the Christian life, I can count it all joy. My soul can rejoice because I know who my God is. That's all David's doing here. He's just preaching. He's just reminding himself who his Lord is. <laughs> the character of his God. And it brings him to this pleasant, joyful place. Even in the midst of difficulty. Listen, you... you you long to have more joy in your life? Get to know your God better. Open up your Bible. He is here. He reveals his nature and his character to you. When we move away from his word, our joy is robbed. Make what we're doing right now a priority. What are we doing? We are filling our minds with the knowledge of God this morning. Whether we're singing or, or it's pre-service prayer and we're praying together or it is preaching. Our call in life is to, is to 
to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do we do that if we're not knowing him? And the more we know him, the greater joy we'll experience. John MacArthur says, the more you know him, the better you know him, the more confident you become, the more secure your joy is. Joy is related to your knowledge of God. Little joy or little knowledge, little joy. Much knowledge, much joy. The more you know of God's glorious truth, of God's great covenants and promises, of God's plans, of God's faithfulness, of God's power, the more joy you experience in life. And then he says this, our joy is connected to the goodness of the Lord. And the more you understand his grace and mercy and goodness, the more stable your joy becomes no matter what circumstances may come. Know your Lord and joy will follow. But he's not done. He's not done. Notice verse 3. What he says, he says, it's for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, you might go, well, that's, that's, that seems a little out of place. We just shifted from the character and nature of God to my church. Well, that's the second thing we see here. Joy comes as we delight in God's people. Dave turns his attention to God's goodness expressed in his people. He here is saying, this isn't disconnected from verse 2. This is an outworking of verse 2. He says, God, your people love you, so I love them. Your people delight in you, therefore I delight in them. And don't, don't be confused. This is not idolatry. To say I delight in your people is not idolatry. Certainly the church can be an idol just like anything else. Joy can be an idol. If we, if we pursue joy and to have joy is the end, then it is an idol, right? Joy, joy is not the end. The glory of God is the end. And he is greatly glorified when we take joy in him. So David is not idolizing the church. He's saying, I take joy in your people because your presence is with your people. So we love to be in the presence of one another. We love to be in the presence of God's people because we long to be in the presence of the Lord where there is joy forevermore. And in the presence of God's people, the joy of God is uniquely experienced. You guys know this. We've been bound by the gospel together. The gospel doesn't just bind us to God. It doesn't just bring us to God. It brings us to one another. It brings us to one another. And so really, we should be marked. This is a claim the gospel puts on our lives. We should be marked by a joyful delight for one another. We see this repeatedly in the epistles. Here's one, 1 Thessalonians 3.9. 
Paul says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Paul delighted in the church. He delighted in God's people. Read the epistles and you can't help but be affected by Paul's deep joy in the church. He loved God's people. He longed to be with God's people. God's people brought tremendous joy to his heart. And it makes sense. And this joy should be acutely present when we gather. Bob Coughlin, who leads Sovereign Grace Music, writes, God is particularly interested in our joy. He tells us, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I love, boy, I love coming. It was there this morning when I can hear the voices over the music. God's people shouting for joy to their God. Bob Glavazani says, when the church gathers, the sense of confident joy in God should be pronounced. When we fail to demonstrate delight and satisfaction in God, we're not only dishonoring God, we're disobeying him more than anyone else on earth. Christians have a reason to celebrate, and I would submit to you, more than any place on earth, this is the place where that joy is pronounced. As often as we gather, gathering with your church should be an occasion of great delight and joy. Not because we're so great, but because our Savior is so great. And when we gather as a church, he is uniquely present and glorified. I love going to sporting events. And I just, I just love being in the stadium. The grass, the scoreboard, the bleachers, the people. Screaming fans, we're all wearing the same color. We're all rooting for the same team. How much more when we gather? Not as a superficial rah-rah, but as an expression of our eternal hope and inheritance. An expression of saying, the lines have been drawn for me in pleasant places. And I get to celebrate it with others who can say the same. Amen. Listen, is it a joy for you to gather with your church? If it's not, I would humbly submit to you, it's a sign your heart has drifted. I'm not going to try and tell you to what. That's for the Spirit of God to reveal to you. But if Sunday mornings or community groups for that matter, or for our leaders tonight, if that is not a, a, a beacon, a bright light on your calendar to be able to say, I can't wait to go be with God's people and experience his presence in a unique way, your heart, I humbly submit, has drifted. Has drifted. 
Go to God now, as it says in verse 7, so that he might instruct your soul and bring you back once again to the joy that is meant for you in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says next. He says, guard your heart. So know your Lord, know your God, delight in your church, and guard your heart. Notice verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. So, so with his eyes increasingly filled with the power and goodness of God, he comes to this conclusion. Jealousy, envy to be like the world fades away. The joy of knowing his God, the joy of fellowship with his people, and the allure of the world begins to fade away. David, in a sense here, says, whatever else may be true, I'm resolved not to be like the world. Maybe that's part of the preserve me, Lord. (laughs) Keep this joy that I have in you for you alone. Keep my delight in your people from drifting to, to delight in this world. David has his own trials, but he can't imagine walking through them without the hope of Christ. He says, I, I can't even imagine the sorrows of those who run after gods. Listen, we know this to be true, right? Everyone wants joy. Everyone wants joy. joy. And joy is what the world is selling. Would you agree? Buy this, eat here, go there, use that. And you will have joy. That's what a TV commercial is. <laughs> They're marketing joy. You can't be happy Unless you buy this, and by the way, we'll send you two for $19.99 if you order now, and then you'll be doubly happy. Everyone wants joy, and everyone promises joy. Sam Storm says, your choice isn't whether to passionately seek pleasure. Trust me, you do. (laughs) Your only option is where you'll look or whom you'll love or whose offer of pleasure you'll accept. But if you're in Christ, you're like David. You're not searching anymore. You have Christ. He is your good. He is your treasure. He is your delight. The search is over. The quest is over. Because Christ has revealed himself to you. And in him, as Psalm 16 says... You have a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Listen, the world can throw its best at you. It cannot touch the joy you have in Jesus. 
John Piper says, is there anything, speaking of verse 11, is there anything fuller than full? No. Is anything longer than forever? No. This is no rocket science. This is just glory. Could you see Piper saying that? This is just glory. Nobody anywhere in the world can offer you anything better than Psalm 1611 because nothing is even conceivably better than verse 11. Nothing is fuller than full or longer than forever. Fullness means completely satisfying and forever means those pleasures never stop. The quest is over. You're in Christ. You are his and he is yours. You can join David and say, I don't need to throw in with the world and their ways. I'm not missing anything. I have everything in Christ. And oh, by the way, it only exponentially gets better in heaven. You know, this is the confession that we make when we take the cup and the bread and we are saying, you are my joy. Now, now listen, you, we are saying you are my sacrifice. You are my righteousness. Your blood covers my sin. But listen, if we just stop there, We're missing something. That is meant to move us to our entire being rejoicing in Jesus. Listen, to my non-Christian friend here, I don't know what, I know you're seeking joy. I don't know how you're seeking joy. I don't know what you're longing for in in the depths of your soul. And I don't know where you're going to find it. I do know the only place you'll find it. And it's because you were created for this. You were created for joy in Jesus alone. He created you not, God created you not only as a joy seeker, but one who finds that joy in its fullness, not in this world, but in him and you sat and you listened to communion. You observe God's people delighting in the blood of Jesus and the perfect life that provides our righteousness. You saw us delighting in the gospel that moves us from the courtroom of God where we stand under eternal judgment to the family room of God where we know no wrath but only mercy and grace. And you may be wondering, how can I get that? I am in this room and there is something here. These people seem different. Well, don't look to us. We will only disappoint you. But I'm here to tell you that the good news is that that by faith, Lord, I, I am a sinner. I need a savior. And I believe what you did on the cross is sufficient to save my soul. Would you be merciful to me right now and make me yours? There's no hoops to jump through. 
You don't have to understand this psalm to its fullest. You don't have to be able to get up in front of a group and proclaim Christ. You just humble your heart before the Lord, Yahweh, and simply ask him to save you. To my, to my fellow believer, do you struggle with discontentment? Do you find yourself envying unbelievers? Listen to Jeremiah 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Translation for broken cisterns that can hold no water. Everything the world holds out to you under the guise of joy. Anything that isn't Christ in him crucified. If that's you, I want to encourage you, turn back to the Lord right now in repentance and faith. And again, in the words of John Piper, drink and drink and drink and drink from the fountain of living waters that is Jesus until your soul is satisfied and says, ah. Thank you, John Piper, for that. Finally, we see he says, you want your soul to rejoice, your entire being, then focus on Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one See corruption. If you're wondering where Jesus is in Psalm 16, it's right there. <laughs> it's right there, especially in verse 10. This is the gospel in Psalm 16. David doesn't believe he is immortal. He doesn't believe he is the holy one who will, never, who will not see corruption. He believes the promise of God to send his son, the Holy One. Let me show you what I mean by that. Turn back to 1 Chronicles. Let me show you something. 1 Chronicles 17. I don't think I have this on the screen, but... This is, this is the Lord's promise to David, Okay? Verse 11, he says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish the kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and I will not take my steadfast love for him 
as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Who is this? Well, in the near future, it's Solomon. But in the bigger picture, it's Jesus. Solomon lived and died. But the promise here is to establish his throne forever. And so now flip ahead to the New Testament, Acts 2. And I want you to show, I want to connect this with Peter's sermon. Acts 2. And in verse 25, Peter says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always, this is Psalm, this is our Psalm. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. And now Peter Peter explains what David meant by that. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David's dead. (laughs) His body has seen corruption. Being therefore a prophet, though, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, 1 Chronicles 17, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In Acts 13, Paul uses the same verse to make the same argument. You see what Peter does here? He interprets Psalm 16 as David foreseeing the resurrection of the Messiah. And for David, it brought persevering joy to his heart. Did he know what it would all look like and the details? Probably not. But he understood the promise of God. He understood that he couldn't live forever. He understood that his son couldn't live forever. Therefore, there must be another son that God is speaking of here. Oh, that would be the Messiah. David, he says, I set the Lord and his gospel promise before me as his source of joy. Now, now on this side of the cross, the good news of great joy that David hoped for and delighted in is fulfilled for us. How much more joy does that bring to us? We take communion to celebrate that which David looked forward to, that he had confidence in. And yes, though he didn't know everything that became a source for his joy, and what that means is David's source of joy is no different than yours and mine. It's an arisen Savior. It's an arisen Messiah. He had the same joy that we had, but how much more for us? But notice what verse 8 says. We must be like David. We must do as David says. David set the Lord 
before him. Joy comes as we set Christ before us. This, this is the ultimate key to our joy. And pay attention to the words. He didn't say to the left. He didn't say set the Lord to the right. And he certainly didn't say put the Lord behind you. Isn't that what we tend to do? Lord, right there. Career, right here. Lord, over there, give me some space. Pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure and leisure, right here. Lord, get behind me. Politics. Now David says, I set the Lord before me right here. Right here. Right where I can see him. Always. I set him before me so that as I look forward, everything that I see, I see through the lens of him. Everything that I interpret, I interpret through what I see, him. Set the Lord before you. You know what I love to do? I love to put pictures of my wife everywhere. <laughs> Go to my office, look at my phone. My favorite picture of my wife, somewhere outside of Jerome, leaning against the motorcycle. <laughs> she is beautiful. But in front of the motorcycle. In front. Yes, I'll show you the photo. Helmet hair and all. By the way, my wife can rock the helmet hair. I'm just saying. But I put those pictures on her because I love her. And I want to be reminded of her. And I want to live and act. And when I'm out and about, I want to use my eyes in a way that's informed by the love of my life. David says, set the Lord before you. You want your whole being to be consumed with joy. Set the Lord before you. That's the key, right, that the writer's Hebrews 12 says, throw off every sin that hinders as you run your race. And then what's next? Looking to Jesus. You know what the imagery there is? For the writer of Hebrews, in that day, short distance runners from this end to that end, call it a hundred meter dash, whatever you want, there was a pole. And those runners would set their sights on that pole at the starting line, and they would run fixed on that pole. So they knew exactly where they were going. And as they grew weary, as they grew tired, that sighting of that pole that was getting closer and closer and closer would give them second wind and perseverance to keep on running. Set your sights on Jesus, the one who for the joy set before him which I believe to be the glory of his Father and you. 
endured the cross in our place. He endured the agony and the despair and the pain of the cross so that you could have joy, so that your sins could be forgiven, your heart justified before the Lord, and that you could experience all the blessings, Ephesians 1, all the blessings of heaven as your inheritance as adopted sons and daughters of God. Therefore, Jesus is our joy. (laughs) He is our joy. You want to grow in joy? Fill your mind with the knowledge of your Lord. Delight in God's people. Guard against the world. Guard against the joy robbers. Guard against the false joys. And look to Jesus. In the words of John Piper, it's not rocket science. It's glory. I have the worship team come up. Sam Storm says, God God created us so that the joy he has in himself, listen to this, might be ours. God doesn't simply think about himself or talk to himself. He enjoys himself. He celebrates with infinite and eternal intensity the beauty of who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have been invited or we have been created to join him in that divine party. (laughs) By grace through faith in Christ, you have joined the greatest party ever thrown. You belong to God in whose presence is a fullness of joy and pleasures are forevermore. Shouldn't that church make us then the happiest people on the planet? It should And I pray that it will more and more. As we set Jesus before us every day, we pray that the God of all joy would pour out his joy on us as a church for our good, for the the good testimony of our church, and for the glory of God today, tomorrow, and forevermore.